Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is July 13th, 2020, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is What's the Sign and the Symptoms of Pneumonia? Just because I can't sing doesn't mean I won't sing. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Justin Morgenstern. He is an emergency physician and the creator of the excellent FOMED project called First 10 EM. Welcome back to the SGM, Justin. It's always a pleasure to join you for some nerdy talk, Ken. What has the First uh, 10 EM been up to lately? You know, it's it's mostly business as usual, but I'm I'm really proud of this uh, of a guest blog post that was put together by two medical students at the University of Toronto. It's Shauna Adams and Nelson Sadler about trying to increase diversity in medicine. Now, it's not much of a secret that some groups are pretty underrepresented in medicine. Four years ago, there was only a single black medical student at the University of Toronto in a class of more than 250 people. You know, we're one of the most multicultural cities in the world. This year, there are more than 20. And so that post just describes that program, which is sort of designed to decrease implicit bias in medical school application. And I think this is a really important issue, and I really hope more medical schools can institute programs like this. So if people are interested, you can find that post on First 10 AM. I'll put a link at the end of this post just so people can find it easier. Uh, But I'm still recovering from that two-part series you did with Casey Parker on broom docs about evidence-based medicine. Yeah, and EBM 2.0. I know you almost drove off the road when it it was titled that, but I think you recovered a bit. And I think when you deep dig into that episode, there's some really interesting topics in there that go beyond our sort of basic EBM. So uh, worth thinking about at least. It was very thought-provoking. Well, I'm going to be having Simon Carley on from St. Emlyn's for an SGEM Extra. We'll be talking about his paper with Rick Boddy, Daniel Horner, and Kevin McWay-Jones. They published a paper in the BMJ Emergency Medicine Journal, and their paper is called Evidence-Based Medicine and COVID-19, What to Believe and When to Change. It's an excellent article. Anyways, let's get started on today's SGEM episode. What's the case, Justin? So try to think back to when we had a normal flu season. Yeah, I know that COVID is the only diagnosis that we think about these days, but this data is all from a time before COVID. So you're seeing a 67-year-old woman with no health problems who presents with fever, cough, and myalgias. You're working with a medical student on their very first rotation, and you want to spend some time teaching them about the history and the physical exam. However, being an evidence-based medicine enthusiast, you wonder what aspects of the patient's presentations are going to be truly helpful in making a diagnosis. Oh yes, there is BC, before COVID, and I'm looking forward to AC, after COVID. Well, depending on the time of year, fever and cough can be one of the most common presentations seen in the emergency department. It is important not to miss pneumonia in the sea of viral illnesses. And we have covered various aspects of this issue a number of times on the SGEM. Antibiotic overuse can be a significant problem, and ordering chest x-rays on everybody is inefficient, is expensive, and potentially adds unnecessary risk from radiation. Thus, it's important to know how accurate the history and physical exam is for identifying patients with pneumonia. A prior meta-analysis demonstrated that a combination of normal vital signs and normal lung exam effectively rules out pneumonia, and that a physician's overall 
clinical impression is moderately accurate. However, there had not been a meta-analysis looking at the evidence for individual signs and symptoms for pneumonia in the last decade until now. So Justin, what's the clinical question? So what is the accuracy of individual signs and symptoms in the diagnosis of community-acquired pneumonia? And the reference? So this is Abel and colleagues, Accuracy of Signs and Symptoms for the Diagnosis of Community-Acquired Pneumonia, a meta-analysis in Academic Emergency Medicine, July 2020. So let's PICO it. What was the population? So they looked at adolescents and adults presenting with symptoms of respiratory infection or clinically suspected pneumonia in an outpatient setting. And the intervention? Any clinical sign or symptom, including the vital signs, for pneumonia. And what do they compare it to? So there was no comparisons here. And what was the outcome? Radiologically confirmed pneumonia using chest x-ray as a gold standard. Well, this is an SGEM hot off the press episode, which means we have the lead author on the show. Dr. Mark Abel is a family physician and professor at the University of Georgia in Athens. He's the co-founder of POEMS, editor-in-chief of Essential Evidence, deputy editor of American Family Physician, and co-host of the podcast Primary Care Update. I could have just said uber nerd. Welcome back to the SGEM, Mark. Yeah, it's great to be back with some fellow nerds. And you left off one podcast. That's the uh, poem of the week that I do with Mike Wilkes. We're actually, I think, hitting episode 500. So we've been doing that one for 10 years. Holy cow. I, I guess with that introduction, it's not that surprising that I think you're the first ever lead author that we have on for two different episodes of the SGEM Hop. And it's actually two articles in the very same year, because you were on in March 2020 at, with an episode looking at biomarkers for diagnosing community-acquired pneumonia. Uh, that's you know a lot more academic productivity than most docs have in their entire career. Do, do you have time for anything else? <laughs> I do go for a bike ride every day, but it's obvious you guys are really good at recognizing great research. I think I'll, I'll say that. <laughs> well, Chris Bond and I felt we should not rely upon a biomarker in the emergency department to rule out or rule in community-acquired pneumonia. However, you felt that it could play a role in the outpatient setting. Yeah, I mean, I think in some outpatient settings, uh, particularly in Europe and uh, Australia and other places, uh, CRP, C-reactive protein, is pretty commonly available and cheap and fast, but imaging isn't. And so it can be part of that decision. I, th I don't think it, it's the only thing you look at, obviously, but I think it can be part of the decision uh, in terms of figuring out who might benefit from getting a, uh, being sent somewhere else for a chest X-ray. So now you're going to add to this conversation with this new paper on the signs and symptoms to diagnose pneumonia. Uh, can you tell us what your conclusions were? Sure. Uh, this is quoting from the article. While most individual signs and symptoms were unhelpful, selected individual signs and symptoms are of value for diagnosing community-acquired pneumonia. Teaching and performing those high-value elements of the physical exam should be prioritized with the goal of better targeting chest radiographs and ultimately antibiotics. All right, Justin, you and I are going to go through six questions as part of the quality checklist for systematic reviews of diagnostic studies. The first question is, the diagnostic question is clinically relevant with an established criterion standard. So I gave this one an unsure. The question is definitely clinically relevant. The criterion standard is radiology, which is exactly what we all use clinically, but there have been a number of studies that illustrate that chest x-ray is far from gold when it comes to diagnosing pneumonia. 
The search for studies was detailed and exhaustive? Yes, it was. The methodological quality of the primary studies were assessed for common forms of diagnostic research bias? Absolutely. The assessment of the studies were reproducible? Yes. There was low heterogeneity for estimates of sensitivity or specificity. I gave this one a very Canadian sort of, maybe. There is a definitely a very big range of values for some of the findings, but I think the upper end and the lower numbers, despite being very far apart, actually probably mean the same things to us clinically. And what I mean by that is, you know, a sensitivity of 40% and 70%, those numbers are far, far apart. That might be heterogeneous, but I think both of those numbers are the same to us clinically. Um, and then I didn't see as much heterogeneity in the findings that we might actually use. And the sixth question is, the summary diagnostic accuracy is sufficiently precise to improve upon existing clinical decision-making models. So we said no, because the overall conclusion is that none of these findings are all that great. Well, let's go through some of the key results. They identified 16 studies that met their inclusion and exclusion criteria. Now, seven were based in the emergency department and nine in a primary care setting. The number of participants ranged from a low of 52 to almost 3,000 patients. The mean age ranged from the early 30s to the early 60s, and between 48 and 60% of the participants were female. A chest x-ray was used as the, quote, gold standard in all studies. The risk of bias was assessed low in 12 and moderate in 5. The prevalence of pneumonia was 10% in the primary care studies and 20%, so double the amount in the emergency department studies. But what was the key result? So no individual sign or symptom was good enough to independently rule in or rule out pneumonia. Yeah, the most helpful indicator was overall clinical impression with a positive likelihood ratio of 6.32, the highest of any finding and a negative likelihood ratio of 0.54. Although there were a number of symptoms and signs that were associated with pneumonia, the low positive likelihood ratios, generally less than two, mean that none of these factors are even close to diagnostic on their own. Examples would include things like fever, dyspnea, chest pain, dullness to percussion, crackles, confusion, toxic or ill appearance. And then the negative likelihood ratios, I would say, are even less helpful. We'll, we'll include a full table with all the results in the show notes. The findings with the best test characteristics to rule in pneumonia was ergophony, with a positive likelihood ratio of 6.17 when present, although the negative likelihood ratio was only 0.98. And then the absence of any vital signs was the best finding for ruling out pneumonia with a negative likelihood ratio of 0.25. All right, let's bring Mark back in and talk nerdy. Last time, Mark, we only had five questions, which is my favorite number, by the way. But this time, we're doubling that to 10. You ready for 10 questions? I'll do my best. All right, the first question was about exclusions. You excluded patients from skilled nursing facilities with chronic lung disease and immunosuppressed patients. From a pure diagnostic standpoint, that makes sense. However, these are probably the patients in whom it's most important not to miss a diagnosis of pneumonia. Based on your results, how do you approach the diagnosis in these patients? 
Well, you know, the, unfortunately, we didn't do that study, and I think that would be a, a good study. I, I think one of the things you're doing when you are doing a meta-analysis is you're trying to uh, remove sources of heterogeneity, you know, people using different doses of the drug or different durations of follow-up or different populations. And, you know, the severity of illness, the likelihood of having fever in a SNF patient uh, who's, who's older, uh, different pathogens, different severity of illness in, in immunocompromised, I think it would have clouded what's already, you know, a bit of a cloudy picture, but it, I think it would have made it harder to interpret. So, you know, I do hope that for docs who have worked a long time in the skilled nursing facility, for example, in that setting, that they've developed that overall clinical impression that's going to be helpful for them. So our second question was about other available databases. So you limited your search to the Medline databases, whereas we see other systematic reviews often search multiple different databases to ensure that the results aren't biased by missing potentially published studies. Can you explain for our listeners why a researcher might search one database versus multiple and whether you think it could affect your results? Well, if they're lazy, that's that's probably the most common reason. In my case, uh, th that's part of it also. But uh, MBASE is a European equivalent of PubMed. And in their infinite wisdom, the uh, regents of the University System of Georgia have not given us access to that database, so I can't search that. I have had other people run searches for me before in it, and it has never added a single study over what I found in PubMed. So it may be important in some cases, but generally not. In treatment meta-analyses, Cochrane, you want to make sure you're looking at the Cochrane Control Trials Register, but that's not helpful for diagnosis. And then some of these more specialized databases like Cyclet and AIDSLIT just weren't relevant and, and didn't have data on diagnostic studies. So um, that's my defense. Well, it, it was an honest defense. <laughs> Maybe they'll get you access. <laughs> I'll keep my fingers crossed. The third point we wanted to talk about was the imperfect gold standard. The signs and symptoms were compared to chest x-ray. We know chest x-ray is less accurate in diagnosing community-acquired pneumonia than a CT scan. How do you think this could have impacted your results? Yeah, we did find some studies uh, that was brought up by one of the reviewers. And in our discussion, we found some studies that compared CT and chest x-ray in the same patients with, um, with or without pneumonia. And actually, there was pretty good accuracy in terms of finding an infiltrate. Now, whether that infiltrate is bacterial, whole nother question and a really important question. All right, moving on to question number four, we have a question about prevalence and possible selection bias. You know, maybe it's just the community that I work in, but where I work, everybody wants to have their viral illness checked in the emergency department. Um, and so a 20% prevalence of pneumonia in the emergency department seems pretty high to me, actually. Uh, could this represent selection bias? And if so, how would that impact the results? Yeah, that's a that's a great point, and I think it could be. And I didn't I actually could go back and look in terms of the age of some of the studies and the prevalence and see if there's an association. Certainly, my impression with uh, chest pain, for example, and probably with respiratory infections as well, is that we're seeing lower acuity in the emergency department in the U.S. That often has to do with lack of access to primary health care, and that over time, probably that prevalence is is going down. I don't think it's going to bias. In theory, it shouldn't bias accuracy that much. It might if it, fe if it affected, uh, if there were major differences in the spectrum of illness. But um, one thing that I think is, is in our favor is that when we did look, and this is in the supplemental appendix, there was no difference between the ED accuracy and the primary care accuracy uh, between the different um, 
signs and symptoms. So at least that level of difference in prevalence, the higher prevalence ER versus lower prevalence primary care didn't seem to affect the results. Oh, we're getting into bias here. So let's carry on with that. Number five is about spectrum bias. In general, these studies included patients in whom the clinicians suspected pneumonia. And so presumably are a sicker cohort than all comers with a cough. The negative likelihood ratios would probably look better if we included all comers. And we might be misled into over-testing if we try to apply these results to every patient presenting with a cough. Well, the studies actually were a mix. Some of the studies only included patients who had been sent for a chest x-ray. And then other studies were set up to um, include any patient with acute respiratory symptoms. And generally, they had some list of, they had to have some systemic symptoms, some uh, pulmonary symptoms. And if they met those criteria, they all got sent for a chest x-ray. And we actually looked at the different, at those two groups of studies, and we found no difference in accuracy. Again, that was in the supplemental appendix. Question number six is our last question specifically about bias, this time about verification bias. And you specifically mentioned in your methods section that you only included studies in which imaging was either performed on all patients or at least on all high-risk patients with a random sampling of low-risk patients in order to avoid verification bias. Could you explain verification bias to our listeners and why it might be important in this type of literature? Yeah, it basically just means that the diagnosis was verified the same way uh, with imaging, in this case, in all patients, uh, using different reference standards, or even worse, using no reference standard in some patients can really bias the results and, and will tend to make the tests look more accurate than they actually are. Uh, an example is if you did a study where you gave everyone with, with chest discomfort a stress test, and then you only cathed those that had an abnormal stress test and assumed that those with a normal stress test were Uh, didn't have heart disease, it's going to make that stress test look much more accurate than it actually is. So uh, studies of appendicitis have had some of the same issues. So we talk about, uh, you know, complete verification where everybody got the same test, partial verification where some people got a reference standard and some didn't, and differential verification where, for example, some patients had surgical pathology on their appy and others had 30-day telephone follow-up as their reference standard. Well, that's enough about bias. Let's move on to question seven, and that's about sensitivity and specificity. The only finding with a moderate sensitivity for ruling out pneumonia was the absence of any abnormal vital signs. I worry that people will hear the results and interpret it as if the patient has an abnormal vital sign, they must get imaging. However, the specificity is going to be pretty low. Basically, every influenza patient is mildly tachycardic. Can you talk about sensitivity, specificity, and how these numbers actually drive your clinical practice? Well, they don't. I I really rarely uh, pay attention to sensitivity or specificity unless they are really at the extreme. If they're 95% or above, if the sensitivity is very, very high, then if that finding is absent, uh, you can rule out the condition. If it's uh, very, very specific and the finding is positive, you can tend to rule in the condition. We call those snouts and spins. Or I think the McMaster's folks actually came up with that. So unless they're at the extremes, they're not helpful. I tend to use likelihood ratios. And for vital signs, for example, that's where a negative or absence of abnormal vital signs had a pretty good negative likelihood ratio, but the presence of any abnormal vital signs really wasn't all that helpful. So I, I like the likelihood ratios better. 
I tend to like likelihood ratios better as well. And I think that leads us pretty good into question number eight, which uh, we titled limited utility versus no utility. And I have to say, it's pretty easy to look through these numbers and maybe get a little nihilistic. I could imagine people looking at the numbers and saying, you know, is the physical exam even necessary at all? However, there's a big difference between a single criterion having the limited impact by itself independently and it having no impact at all. Presumably, the overall clinician's impression, which was the most accurate finding here, included many of these individual findings, so they may add up to more than the sum of their parts. Yeah, I think so. And I think um, uh, that, that expertise that you develop over time as a clinician, as you see tens and hundreds and thousands of patterns, you know, the pattern being a set of signs and symptoms and then a known outcome of, yeah, they had a pneumonia, no, they didn't. And you start to sort of implicitly build those those uh, findings into your judgment. And you can't even sometimes say exactly why you said, boy, this person, I think they had a pneumonia and, why, and this one didn't. But I think it's that sort of implicit judgment that we're, we're developing. Another point to make is that uh, we don't really have, there have been a number of clinical prediction rules proposed, but I'm actually not aware of any that's actually been prospectively validated. I would love to know if there was one, but I'm not aware of it. And, and other studies that I've looked at uh, have uh, similarly not found any validated. It seems like that would be kind of a useful thing. It's those combinations of signs and symptoms that could help us focus on, you know, here are the four or five, six things we really ought to pay attention to, and here's how we can put them together to uh, risk stratify patients. Well, Mark, my final nerdy question is about clinical significance. A positive chest x-ray does not mean a patient has a bacterial pneumonia, and prescribing antibiotics to a patient with a viral pneumonia is unlikely to have a patient-oriented outcome, or a poo. Do you think that this disease-oriented outcome, or a do, and not a poo, is a problem? Well, you know, it's certainly, uh, all we know is that these signs and symptoms and overall clinical impression are, you know, how they predict infiltrate, right? Uh, it's not necessarily saying anything about whether that infiltrate is bacterial or viral. There have been uh, studies out of Europe, the GRACE uh, trial group, uh, Theo Verhey and, and that group have looked at this, and they've actually looked at patients who had a bacterial pathogen and some and those who received an antibiotic and some didn't and found very little difference in illness trajectory. And there are a lot of these pathogens like, for example, mycoplasma pneumonia, where we, you know, think it's something that might benefit from a macrolide, for example, but there's actually no clinical uh, trial evidence of it. Uh, one last point is there was just recently a study in Pakistan. It was uh, published in the New England Journal where they randomized uh, young children. Now, we're not talking about kids here, but young children with uh, clinically diagnosed pneumonia and tachypnea, at least 40 to 50 uh, breaths per minute. And they were randomized to amoxicillin and uh, placebo. And while there was a statistically significant benefit of the amoxicillin, it was really didn't meet clinical significance uh, to my mind. So I think most of those kids have uh, viral pneumonia. And I think uh, a, f a lot of uh, um, our adults will have a viral pneumonia as well. Unfortunately, you know, we just don't have easy ways to figure that out quickly. C-reactive protein may be uh, a biomarker of more severe illness. Um, procalcitonin, perhaps. I think that's a fascinating topic. We often think that our antibiotics are like parachutes, like they are going to 100% save the patient's life, and without the antibiotics, they're going to die. But there's a lot of gray area, which makes all this so much more difficult, clinically speaking. Yeah, that's right. I couldn't agree more.
All right, so let's get to our last clinical question. Are all clinicians the same? Because overall clinical judgment was the most accurate here for diagnosing pneumonia, but I do wonder whether all clinicians are equally as good. This is sort of a two-part question. First, you might be able to answer from your data. Do we know what level of training the participants were in these studies? And second, isn't from the data at all, but do you think there are ways that we can improve our own clinical judgment when it comes to pneumonia? Yeah, it's kind of like what Garrison Keillor said, you know, all the children are above average in Lake Wobegon, so all, all clinicians are above average, right? Um, so I, I think in terms of the studies, most of them, I, I believe, I, I'm not aware that any used exclusively trainees. I don't think so. Uh, I'd have to go back. But I, my impression from what I recall reading the studies is the vast majority were clinicians in practice, either emergency physicians or uh, GPs. And uh, yeah, there's going to be a range. I, I think there's probably, there might be a sweet spot, you know, that as you have enough training, enough experience, have seen enough of those patterns I talked about, that you become very skilled in terms of your overall clinical impression. But then there's probably another side to that over time that people can kind of calcify and develop some bad habits or, you know, get lazy in terms of their decision making. And, um, you know, I certainly see some docs who slip into the habit of kind of doing the same thing for every patient um, when, when that might not be the best thing. Justin, where are we on that arc? I'm still right in the middle of my career, Ken. Right in that sweet spot, for sure. Yeah, I'm I'm downhill. I'm all the way downhill right now. I think I'm calcifying. (laughs) All right, well, it's time to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions. So we agree with the author's conclusions that most individual signs and symptoms are unhelpful on their own, but there are a few high-value findings like normal vital signs or egophony. These findings can be used to teach the physical exam and may help make better decisions about imaging and antibiotic use. Yep, so no individual sign or symptom is good enough to either rule in or rule out community-acquired pneumonia. Decisions should be made on the clinician's overall judgment. However, individual clinicians may want to try to improve their expertise by reviewing radiology results and following patients up clinically so that they can learn from their own mistakes over time. And can you resolve the case that you presented? So you review the entire history and physical exam with your student as everybody needs to learn the basics. You explain to the patient that based on your clinical expertise, you think it's unlikely that they have pneumonia, and so they don't need to be exposed to a chest x-ray at this time. However, you explain to the patient that no test is perfect, and so if she's getting worse and is worried that you might have missed a pneumonia, she should come back for a recheck. So how are you going to take this hot-off-the-press article and apply it clinically? So like we said, depending on where you are in your career, reviewing these numbers may help you develop the expertise required to accurately diagnose pneumonia, although clinical diagnosis alone will probably never be perfect in this condition. And what are you going to tell the patient? So I'd say, you know, based on the symptoms that you have, your normal vital signs, and the fact that your lung exam is normal, I think it's very unlikely that you have a pneumonia today. So we don't want to expose you to a chest x-ray. However, we can never be 100% certain. So if you're getting worse, please come back so we can recheck you. Time to announce the Keener Contest winner. Last week's winner was Matt Corey, a PA from Phoenix, Arizona. He knew that Elliot Grossbard, a Genentech scientist, is reported to have said, quote, We do not know how another trial would turn out. And if we do not come out ahead, we would have a terrible self-inflicted wound. Another study may be a good thing for America, but it wouldn't be a good thing for us. 
End of quote. Justin, what's the question this week? So I definitely wouldn't know the answer to this question if it wasn't on the sheet right in front of me. The question is, egophony comes from the Greek word for an animal and is a reference to the sound they make. What animal is it? Isn't that a good question? I mean, I've, I've heard the term egophony for so long and I like the term, but I never knew where it came from. So pick this one out. If you know the answer, then send me an email to thesgem at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive a cool skeptical prize. Now it's your turn, SGMers. What did you think of this episode on the diagnostic accuracy of signs and symptoms for a community-acquired pneumonia? Please tweet your comments using the hashtag SGEMHOP. And if you have any questions or comments for Mark and his team, ask them on the SGEM blog, because as always, the best social media feedback will be published in Academic Emergency Medicine. And if you subscribe to AEM, you can go to the homepage and get CME credits for this podcast. Thanks, Justin, for doing another SGEM Hop. Absolute pleasure as always. Mark, thanks again for uh, coming back on and uh, putting up with 10 of our nerdy questions. Can you read the tagline for us? Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it, on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next time. It's the time of the sea.